Good morning. morning. Can you turn with me please to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Now I'm going to begin in a rather strange place. I'm going to begin halfway through a verse. We're starting halfway through verse 15 and we'll conclude in chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm going to begin with Paul's declaration. I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like incorruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonour their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use For what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetedness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever are you to judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek, seek for glory, honour and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honour and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now whenever we speak or read the Bible even, we must remember that we are handling the very word of God. And what I've just read is undeniably immensely powerful. Therefore we must make sure that we seek to understand and apply it with the utmost care and respect. I began halfway through verse 15, reading Paul's declaration that he's ready to preach the gospel. And he then proceeds to give the reasons why in the next three sentences, each beginning with the word for. The first reason is that the gospel is a revelation of the awesome power of God, the power to change lives, the power to set a, free, set a person free from their slavery to sin. The power to change the direction of a person's life from a, life from a path that leads to disappointment, destruction and death into a new way that leads to eternal life. For it's the power of God unto salvation. Of such a gospel, there is no reason to be ashamed. And Paul declares that he indeed is not ashamed, even though there was, no doubt, a pressure in Roman society at that time to make Christians feel ashamed. The second reason is because the gospel gives us the clearest explanation of what God is truly like. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The third reason is not only is the righteousness of God revealed, but it's also a revelation of his wrath against all that is ungodly and unrighteous. It's a revelation of what makes him angry and how we can recognise when he is so in the attitudes and behaviour of a society. Now notice this passage. In this passage, the first two reasons are not immediately expanded upon. Paul does expand on these later. The first reason is discussed at length throughout chapters 6 to 8. The second is the predominant theme of chapters 2 to 5. It's the third and last of these reasons that Paul refers to that he discusses more fully throughout the remainder of chapter 1 and our attitudes to what he has stated in the early parts of chapter 2. So it's to the third of these reasons we now turn, to the revelation of God's wrath. Now God has given us a revelation of what makes him angry, and how to recognise when a society is exp experiencing his wrath. Paul states that when a society deliberately makes a conscious decision to give up their knowledge of God, even though it's obvious that he exists and that he has made his righteous requirements known, then he gives them up. So what does he give them up to? 
He gives them up to what's already in them. Unclean lusts of the heart and to futile thinking. In other words, he removes that which restrains and contains us. He removes the boundaries. He gives us up to do those things that we really desire to do if we thought we could get away with it. Now we need to be careful to understand that what is said in verses 18 to 32 is a comment concerning society and not directed towards individuals. Now it does say that God gives up that society. Now that does not mean that they are completely without hope and that there is no way back. For God has said through the prophet Jeremiah, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil then I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. You see, if there was no way back, why would Paul be so eager and ready to preach the gospel in Rome? In this chapter, Paul teaches some tough lessons. He says some things that society finds very hard to accept. And he does not do so to upset or offend. Neither does he say them to accuse or condemn. He reveals what makes God angry out of an attitude of love. A sincere desire to see people repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is a way back, both for individuals in particular and for society in general. Now in verses 18 to 21, Paul reveals that there is no such thing as either an atheist or an agnostic. The truth is, they're experts in self-deception. These are people who have deliberately and willfully so suppressed the truth that they've managed to convince themselves that either there is no God or that they're not sure whether he does exist. But both are without excuse because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. So what has God made known? Well, verse 20 continues that his invisible attributes are clearly seen in the things that he has made. He goes on to mention his eternal power and Godhead in particular. Now, on a previous occasion, I did give a few examples of how the three-in-one nature of the Godhead can be clearly seen in the things he has made. I mentioned time, for instance. It only makes sense if there is a past, a present and a future. You cannot have one without the other. Physical substance can only exist in three dimensions. There is no such thing as one, two or even four dimensions in physical reality. See, even a very thin straight line has three dimensions. The thickness and width may be very small compared to the length, but without them the line would not exist. All physical substances are either solids, liquids or gases, or indeed any combination of any two or all three, which is why we get foams, gels, aerosols and the like. This three-in-oneness is seen even in DNA and all things ultraviolet and infrared, the electromagnetic spectrum. In fact, we owe our understanding of it to a Christian, James Clark Maxwell. Maxwell was faithfully taught the scriptures by his mother right from when he was a young boy. And Maxwell himself stated that Romans 1.20 was the inspiration that enabled him to understand and describe the electromagnetic spectrum. It was the three-in-oneness of the Godhead that inspired him to formulate the mathematical equations in three dimensions, which caused him to make these discoveries. 
So what are the invisible attributes of God that can be seen in his creation and his people? Well, today I just want to mention two. Let me start with morality. What does morality look like? See, it has no physical form or substance. It's an invisible attribute, but it can be clearly seen in people. It can be seen in their actions and their attitudes. Although people try to argue differently, people instinctively know how, know and understand there are absolute moral standards. See, people in every culture understand that lying, cheating, murder and stealing are all wrong. Now, in the postmodern world that we live in, people try to argue that there are no absolute moral standards. And therefore, one group of people should not try to impose their moral standards on others. However, do you see that this is a, an irrational, self-refuting argument? See, the moment they say should or ought, they're, they're appealing to a higher absolute moral standard in order to argue that there isn't one. See, who said that people should not try to impose their moral standards on others? We need to ask them, is that something that we all need to agree to? The problem is not that there is an absolute moral standard. The problem is that human beings have rebelled against the one who has the right to make and implement that moral standard. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. The appeal of the forbidden fruit was that it was desirable to make one wise and to be like God, knowing good and evil. It was an appeal to usurp the authority of God in order to define their own morality apart from God. They were saying, we don't like your standards of right and wrong, so we'll decide them for ourselves. And this is the very thing that people are doing today. But what happens when people define their own standards? Well, just as happened in the Garden of Eden, it resulted in disaster and death. See, when we read through the book of Judges, it reveals a time in Israel's history when there was utter chaos, immorality and destruction. And it also repeatedly gives the reason why. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What would happen if some people decided it was unfair that red always had to mean stop when they arrived at the traffic lights? Now, people might argue that moral standards should be determined, therefore, by what the majority believe, a statistical majority. But just because a lot of people believe something is right does not make it so. There have been many examples in history when the majority of people have believed something that's turned out to be completely wrong. But shouldn't we, therefore, define morality, morality in terms of what's best for people, what is most likely to make them happy? Now, from an evolutionist perspective, if we are the product of evolution, why should we do what's best for others? If it's not in my interest, or if it won't in any way enhance my survival potential, why should that bother me? Survival of the fittest, after all. See, when we decide that morality should work in people's best interests, we're beginning to, be, to borrow from a biblical perspective, acknowledging that people are special since they were made in God's image. And therefore, we need to treat them accordingly. The second example I want to give you is from the law of mathematics. 
I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions from that reaction. (laughs) Now, we're reaching that time of year when we're less likely to encounter frost on our windscreens in the morning. But on those occasions when you've in frustration been scraping the windows, have you ever stopped to notice the beautiful and intricate patterns in those ice crystals that those ice crystals form? See, those crystals and the amazing patterns they form are the product of mathematical laws. So too are beautiful snowflakes, each unique, each feature the product of mathematical laws that govern the universe. Indeed, we see this throughout nature, in plants, in animals, in all living creatures, even immensely powerful, destructive work of lightning strikes, If you've ever seen lightning strikes in that kind of slow time-lapse photography, you see the amazing patterns that are formed. They're all governed by mathematical laws. Now the heavens declare the glory of God. And as astronomers gaze beyond our galaxy into the deepest, remotest regions of space, they see the amazing beauty of spiral galaxies. Again, the product of mathematical laws that govern our universe. We all know this to be true. How many of you looked up into the skies recently to witness the eclipse? Well, why did you do it at that time? Because astronomers using those mathematical laws accurately predicted it. And why were they able to do so? See, there's no question that the universe obeys mathematical laws. But the real question is, why? Now, the evolutionists cannot explain this. The evolutionist has no rational explanation as to why this should be so. But we do, for we believe in the God who created and sustains the universe. See, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Confirmed in the book of Hebrews when it says, In the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness and express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Now what is mathematics? See, it's not a physical entity. It's not physical substance. It therefore did not evolve as a consequence of random processes. I believe it's an invisible attribute that can be seen in the things that God has created. The dictionary defines numbers as the concept of quantity, and concepts are only produced in the mind. But mathematics was not the invention of human beings. Mathematical laws were in existence before humans, at least 144 hours. That's six days. Mathematical laws are clearly the product of a mind, an infinitely brilliant mind that must have existed before humans and even the universe itself. The fact that the universe obeys mathematical laws leads to only one rational conclusion, that the universe was created by and is being sustained by the one who invented these mathematical laws. Someone once said that mathematical laws give us a window into the mind of God. And when we consider the properties of mathematical laws, we would therefore expect them to reflect something of God's attributes as he, ma- as he has made himself known in the scriptures. See, Psalm 139 declares the omnipresence of God. 
Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? See, mathematical laws are universal. They apply everywhere and in all circumstances. In fact, they extend beyond the universe. Two plus two would still equal four before the universe existed and even if the universe ceased to exist. The prophet Malachi makes known the declaration of God. God says in Malachi, I am the Lord and I do not change. We serve a God who does not change with time. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Now mathematical laws don't change with time. Pythagoras theorem, do you remember that? The relationship of the sides of the triangle? Well, we can confidently predict it will still work next Friday. (laughs) In fact, it was working long before Pythagoras discovered it. You see, he merely discovered and described it in equations that brought such joy to our school years. (laughs) The fact that mathematical laws do not change with time is the reason why that many who had missed that eclipse because it was too cloudy, soon after consulted the media to find out when and where the next one would be. Now, evolutionary scientists are well aware that the universe obeys mathematical laws. And they're well aware also that they have no explanation for it, though many have tried. One example being the brilliant physicist Dr. Eugene Wigner, for example, who recently wrote a report entitled The Unreasonable, which means I can't work out why, (laughs) The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. Now actually he's being a little bit, he's actually guilty of the self-deception we mentioned earlier. See, in his report he draws this conclusion. It's difficult to avoid the impression that a miracle confronts us here. I'll say it does. In fact, he goes on. It's difficult to avoid the impression that a miracle confronts us here, or rather two. The existence of the laws of nature and the fact that the human mind can understand them. See, although he cannot explain the fact that human beings can understand them, we can. For our Bible tells us we were created in God's image. And therefore he has given us a mind that can recognise them, understand them, and describe them in neat little equations such as E equals MC squared. See, the answer is staring him in the face. He admits it is miraculous, an act of God. And it stands to reason that since God thinks mathematically that the universe he created will be upheld in a mathematical way. Now these invisible attributes are clearly seen and therefore leave everyone without excuse. See, when society rejects their knowledge of God, there are inevitable consequences. Now remember Paul's purpose for writing. He is giving us a revelation of what makes God angry and how we can clearly recognise it. And in particular, Paul goes on to describe the many expressions of idolatry and false religion that were a prominent feature of first century Rome and becoming increasingly so in 21st century Britain. See, when society willfully gives up their knowledge of God, they will replace it with something. See, first they replace God, who has the right to determine absolute morality, with man who does not. Therefore, the incorruptible is replaced with the corruptible. 
The rightful worship of the creator is replaced by wrong worship of created things. The truth has been replaced with a lie. And this has consequences in the way we think. Professing to be wise, that is trying to convince themselves as well as others, they became fools. They didn't start out like it, that's what they ended up like. Since they did not care to retain their knowledge of God, he gave them over to a debased mind. They became futile in their thinking. Now there are many examples that could be given of this, but I want to give one very up-to-date example. A few weeks ago I was in Reading in a well-known high street bookstore. Now one thing really struck me as I looked at the bookshelves in the fiction section, the novels. Now there is a saying that you should not judge a book by its cover, but the illustrations on the front of the majority of those books were truly horrific. Hideous images of demonic-looking skulls with piercing eyes and sharp-pointed teeth. Images of fierce warrior-like figures brandishing brutal weapons. There were daggers, there was blood, a theme of darkness, and a seeming fascination with a mythical underworld. And I thought to myself, why are these shelves filled with books of this nature? And the answer is obvious. It's what sells. So I asked myself, why would any intelligent person want to spend their money, spend their leisure time, dwelling on the themes of horror, violence, bloodshed and death? Why would anyone want to fill their head with the stuff of nightmares? Why would anyone want to give themselves nightmares while they're still awake? Do you see, do you see the futility of the thinking? See, if the content of what they are reading became a living reality in their lives, they would be absolutely traumatised. As I thought about this, I had a chilling reminder of what the Bible said about the society just before the flood. The thoughts of their hearts were continually only evil. Now, I say all this not from an accusing, judgmental point of view, because I know... That if I were not, if it were not for the grace of God, that I would be doing exactly the same thing. Because I used to do exactly the same thing myself when I was younger. As well as there being consequences for the mind, Paul goes on to describe that there would also be consequences for the body. Their folly would also result in the dishonouring of their bodies. In particular, Paul mentions homosexual practices in both men and women. Now, I do not believe that Paul is saying that homosexuality is more sinful than any other form of sexual immorality. Heterosexual relationships outside of marriage are equally sinful. Jesus even goes so far as to say that if a man looks with lust at a woman, then he has committed adultery in his heart. So why does Paul focus particularly on homosexual practices in this instance? Well, let's remember Paul's purpose is to describe how one recognises when God is angry with the society. See, when homosexuality is openly practised and accepted as normal, as it was in first century Rome, and it's becoming so in 21st century Britain, it's a particularly outward and obvious sign that that society has re- rejected God's revealed plan and purpose, that the only appropriate context for sexual relations is in a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. 
as we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. He describes homosexual practices as vile passions going against what is natural. So what does Paul mean when he says natural? I believe he means as God intended. And as we have just read the book of Gen- in the book of Genesis, and as that makes clear, that natural sexual relations are between one man and one woman in lifelong marriage. Now the homosexual community may argue that their practice is neither sinful nor unnatural. They would argue that they were born with a predisposition to same-sex attraction and it's therefore natural to them, so how can it be sin? Indeed, there is scientific research that is trying to establish this as a fact, the search for the so-called gay gene. The thinking behind this is that if it can be established that the predisposition towards a homosexual lifestyle is part of their genetic makeup, then the rest of society is under a moral obligation to accept homosexuality as natural and therefore normal. Now, however, this should not unduly concern us, since the Bible doesn't teach that we were indeed conceived in sin. We're all born with an inherent, instinctive inner compulsion to sin. Homosexuality is simply one of the many expressions of the fallen nature that we inherited from Adam. How many of us have never felt an almost irresistible compulsion to lie in order to not get into trouble? Now this tendency has been observed even in very young, tri- in, in, even in very young children, as many parents will testify. To some, it is instinctively to look lustfully at another person. As we read earlier, Jesus described this as having committed adultery in the heart, and therefore it's not right to do so. Just because we feel a very powerful, instinctive inner compulsion to behave in a certain way does not make it right, and neither does it absolve us from our responsibility to live in obedience to God's revealed plan and purposes. God's word makes it very clear that homosexual practice is sinful. Now someone might argue, how can it be sinful if this instinctive inner compulsion is something that I cannot change? But isn't this true of all sin? We sometimes can exercise restraint. We can all make resolutions and try to be a little bit better and try to learn from our mistakes. But in and of our own strength, we cannot keep it up. The Bible rightly describes people as being enslaved by sin. We're all slaves to sin. We're all powerless to defeat the sin that controls us. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Although we cannot change ourselves, the good news is that God can and will do so if we call upon his name. And this brings us right back to the first point Paul made when declaring he's ready to preach the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation. This is the good news, that Jesus has not only paid the penalty for sin when he made the perfect sacrifice of himself upon the cross... He has also made it possible for us to be made good, to be set free from our slavery of sin. As we sang earlier in Melody Green's song, that there is a redeemer. And a redeemer is a person who buys another out of slavery. A redeemer sets a person free from slavery. 
And the song goes on to identify that Jesus is the Redeemer who sets us free from the slavery of sin. In order to understand why only God has the power to change us, we need to, concede, uh, we need to consider again to understand what it means to be born again. Born again means a new life begins. Our old lives, therefore, must end. When I spoke about this on a previous occasion, we looked at a passage in Ezekiel to bring out the meaning. And I think it's appropriate that we return to this passage to consider it further. So turn with me, please, once more to Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're going to have a look at verses 27 and 28. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now when God is talking about the heart, he's not referring to the physical organ pumping blood around our bodies. He's referring to the very core of our being. To that which is deep within us that defines who we, re- who we really are. He describes the heart as being one of stone. But some stones can be carved and be engraved upon. But I think he has in mind a hard stone like flint. You cannot engrave flint. You cannot shape it or change it. Flint is so hard that it cannot be written upon. It's, it's inflexible. You cannot shape or mould it. It's set, it's fixed in its current shape and cannot be changed. This is why we cannot change ourselves. There is only one solution. It needs to be removed from us. And only God can do this and give us a new heart. This is why becoming a Christian is being described as born again. The heart of stone representing the old life needs to be removed. We need to die to our old way of life. And receive the new heart of flesh that God has promised to give us. Then we are born again. Then we start a new life. A new creation with a heart of flesh that can be shaped and moulded by the Spirit of God working in us. Writing his law on our hearts. See, the good news of the Gospels is not that we don't have to change. Neither is it that we have to change ourselves. That would not be good news. We can't do it. The good news is that Jesus has not only paid the penalty for sin, but also that God will give us a new heart and will dwell within us and change us from within, setting us free from being enslaved by the sin nature we inherited from our father Adam. Now for some, when they became Christians, they experienced an inner release from a particular sin or affliction. I've heard the testimony of cocaine addicts that were immediately set free from their addiction. For others, their release has been somewhat slower and even more painful, experiencing increasing degrees of freedom over a longer time frame. And I believe that no Christian experiences complete freedom in every area of their lives. As as the Apostle John wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, as Christians, we are a work in progress. And Paul gives us much reassurance, declaring that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. So what does this heart of stone that only God can remove from us look like? I believe this is what Paul is describing in verses 29 to 32. 
When we read through this depressing list, we realise that we were all born with these tendencies to a greater or lesser extent. Without going through the whole list, let me draw attention to just a few. Wickedness, for example, means to twist the truth to suit our selfish desires. Covetousness, wanting what is not rightfully yours. Now the advertising industry thrives on this. Evil-mindedness is mentioned. A fascination with the occult, with witchcraft, astrology and other means of fortune-telling. Whisperers and backbiters. Maliciously speaking, evil of people behind their back. Now whispering suggests that this is done secretly. So how would it be a sign that society has turned its back on God? Well, if we think about what we hear in the media, see, it's becoming more widely and regularly reported as an ever-increasing feature of the way social media is being misused. I recently read how social media is increasingly being used by disgruntled pupils to vent their anger and hurl abuse at their teachers. That's just one example. In that list, Paul mentions violence. Through television, through films and in many other ways, violence is increasingly being celebrated as something to be admired and emulated. Paul mentions untrustworthy and unforgiving. God has made us social beings to form relationships in which we depend and rely on each other. Now relationships cannot function if we're not reliable, trustworthy and willing to mend those relationships when they go wrong. Now the widespread breakdown of family relationships is another, and society in general is another visual out, outward sign that society has indeed turned its back on God. See, the heart of stone is set so that we will become, as Paul has described in these verses, if we choose not to retain our knowledge of God, we are destined to become less and less like him. And only God can remove this heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. A heart that can be moulded by the Spirit of God working in us. And when he works in us, he moulds our new hearts to reform us into the image that we were originally made. For we were made in God's image, and the Spirit of God works in us to restore that image, conforming us to the image of God's Son. And Galatians 5.22 describes what that is like. Our hearts will be characterised by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And these beautiful characteristics not only make loving relationships possible, they also cause them to grow, deepen and flourish. Now in chapter 2, Paul gives a stern warning against judgmental and hypocritical attitudes in these matters. See, the Bible is very honest and Paul recognises that among those who identify with the people of God, there will be people with such attitudes. Now Paul warns against those attitudes he warns that those attitudes will bring judgment upon them. Those with those attitudes will bring judgment upon themselves. And as Paul later concludes, when he brings the whole discussion to a head with the declaration that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he makes it abundantly clear that it's God alone who has the right to judge. So we must too ensure that we do not deal with these matters with a superior judgmental attitude. 
We've been saved by the grace of God on account of his mercy. So when we are dealing with people with whom we disagree, whether it be with their beliefs, their behaviours or lifestyles, we, we must do so with respect, remembering that uh, they are people that were, be, were created in God's image. They are people for whom Christ has died. And they are people that God is sending us to with his glorious gospel. For as we heard earlier, Christ came to seek and save the lost. Let us therefore treat them respectfully. We do not have the right to insult them, to make jokes about them, to caricature them, to ridicule them or to slander them. For to do so would be like throwing the stones that even the Pharisees did not dare do in Jesus' presence. May we always seek to glorify God in these matters, remembering that we are his ambassadors in this world. And may our motives always be a sincere desire to see people repent and come to a knowledge of the truth that can save them. Now I began this morning with the declaration made by Paul. I am ready to preach the gospel. The question is, are we? Are we ready to give testimony to the saving power of God in our lives? Can we testify as to how God has removed our old hearts of stone and given us a new heart? How God has transformed our lives from one that was characterised by increasing rebellion, envy, malice and strife to one characterised by increasing love, joy, peace, patience and kindness. Can we declare the righteousness of God by living as his ambassadors? Can his family likeness be seen in all we do and say as we live in salt and light in this increasingly dark world? Can we offer hope to a society increasingly displaying the evidence of God's wrath, telling people that there is indeed a way back? There is a loving father waiting to receive them. That there is a redeemer who can save them from the slavery of sin. Let our prayer be that God will enable us and equip us so that we are indeed prepared and ready to preach his glorious gospel. Amen.